know that what today is, obviously today is Palm Sunday, so let me just start with Happy Palm Sunday. I already told you that I would not preach on the triumphal entry today, but I will just say that I would have loved to have been there that day. I would have loved to have been able to see Jesus riding into town and being celebrated as the Messiah, the son of David. And while I would love to have been able to be present that day, there is coming a day when I, as well as each of you who are right with Christ, we will have a front row seat to the next triumphal entry. When Jesus returns for his people, what a day that will be. By the way, I have loved the songs that we did this morning, but that also is one of my favorite songs. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. God has been very good to us, but the best days are yet to come, and I do believe that. It is known as the most epic and complex mission of World War II. In January of 1945, 121 volunteer U.S. Army Rangers set out to rescue more than 500 Allied prisoners of war who had already survived the Bataan Death March, a brutal multi-day forced walk through the searing heat of the Philippine jungles. Thousands of men died. One of the last survivors, by the way, from that march died not that long ago here in Clemson. Those who did not die in that march were imprisoned in the notoriously brutal camp. And I'm going to try to pronounce this camp's name, but I'm probably going to mess it up, so I apologize ahead of time. Cabinatuan. If you speak whatever language they speak in the Philippines, sorry, I'm not as sharp on that as I should I probably butchered that. If not, y'all think I pronounced it correctly, so it's okay. Cabinatuan. To free their fellow soldiers, the Rangers snuck behind enemy lines and launched a surprise attack on the Japanese. The assault lasted 30 minutes and freed hundreds of soldiers with minimal American casualties. The mission was chronicled in Hampton Side's 2002 bestseller, bestseller, Ghost Soldiers, the epic account of World War II's greatest rescue mission. One of the most beautiful aspects of that rescue mission was the fact that these soldiers went in with no recompense. They weren't being paid. They were volunteers. They weren't going as missionaries hoping to make a fortune. They went simply to rescue those who are being held captive. What a beautiful image. Men who were willing to give of themselves just for the purpose of rescuing others from captivity. Likewise, as we reflect on the story of the cross, we see a savior who gave up heaven for the sake of rescuing humanity from sin and death. He would endure incredible abuse and betrayal, but it was worth it as he very much loved the ones that he came to save. But how would the people respond to such an offer of grace? An interesting thought crossed my mind this week as I prepared this sermon. 
Can you imagine the prisoners of war who were rescued there in January of 1945? Can you imagine the rescuers showing up and the prisoners turning down their rescue? Now, it's, it's all good here. The place is kind of growing on me. I think we're going to stay. Sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? Or maybe it's not that they wanted to stay where they were at. Perhaps they would respond with some type of rebuke. Come on, guys, it, this isn't the way that you should have done this. You should have come sooner, or you should have brought more people with you, or perhaps you should have even taken a different route to get in here. And instead of being grateful for the offer of rescue, they would complain about the way that it was being done. Again, it sounds crazy. We wouldn't even think about doing something like that. But that's exactly the story of Jesus and those he came to rescue. His plan was to rescue every individual, but not every individual would respond with the same grace and appreciation. As we approach the story of the cross, we often get caught up in the actions and the symbolism within the crucifixion story, and we will look at some of that today. But this series has been all about the encounters that others had with Jesus. In other words, it's about people, God's love for those people and his impact upon them. So today I want us to look a little more closely at the people who are included in the crucifixion story. Our passage today, for those of you who want to turn in your Bibles, is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. And I'll begin reading today in verse 26. I will tell you that the crucifixion story does not begin in verse 26. In fact, by the time we get to this point, we've already seen multiple betrayals. We've seen a sham court proceeding and significant abuse upon the body of Jesus Christ. But it also should be noted that the crucifixion, which we are about to discuss, was not some new form of punishment among the Romans. Instead, it was a common practice that likely originated among the Babylonians about 600 years earlier, and it became common under the Romans during the reign of Alexander the Great. It would become a common tool used not only to punish, but to serve as a pretty good deterrent to others not to commit crime. This was a public execution. If you knew that a public execution was what awaited you, you might be a little less likely to commit the crime in the first place. So that's where we are as we start this passage. Look at it with me, beginning in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Serene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And they, there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming then when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away 
to be put to death with him. Now, we'll read more of this story in just a moment, but here we find Jesus being paraded through the streets of Jerusalem, this time not in such a triumphant manner as we looked at last week. And you would picture a crowd that has gathered to watch men suffer. You know, it's sad, the, the allure, the attraction of suffering. If a house is set on fire, or if there is a significant car accident, there will always be those who want to see the suffering of others. Of course, on this occasion, there may have also been some who were present, not because they longed to see the suffering of others. Some came with grieving hearts. Some came with curious hearts. Some were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. That seems to be the case for the first man who is mentioned in this story as we see the road to the cross. His name is Simon of Serene, and he is coming in from the country. It's likely that he had some type of business to conduct, or perhaps he was coming to visit some family, or maybe he was just coming for the Passover celebration that was about to take place. But it is unlikely that he came in order to see Jesus crucified. In this case, he is given one of the greatest honors in all of the world, although he likely did not see it as such when it happened. He's not invited, but rather he is forced to take up the cross of Jesus and carry it to the crucifixion site. As I read this, as I read this, I am reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, where he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I wonder if as Jesus gave those words of instruction, if he had in mind the image of Simon of Serene one who would take up the very cross of Jesus. This man literally takes up Jesus's cross and in doing so he carries this burden on behalf of all humanity. There's a bit of irony in this act. This man, Simon of Serene, is one who Jesus came to rescue. And as such, he is carrying the cross for Jesus, but he's doing so for his own benefit as well. While it may not have seemed like an honor at the time, I would think that any of us would have been willing to do the same for Jesus that day. Perhaps you wonder the impact of Simon's encounter with Jesus. I know I've often wondered, who is this man? Mark chapter 15, verse 21 reveals that Simon of Serene is also the father of Alexander and Rufus. Tradition states that these two sons, Alexander and Rufus, would become great missionaries. And the mere mention of them, even in this passage, suggests that they were notable among the original audience that received this gospel. In other words, Simon of Serene was no doubt impacted significantly by his encounter with Jesus Christ that day even leading to his children serving the Lord. What a blessing this encounter must have been to him. But there were others who 
were present on the road to the cross. Verse 27 and 28 mention other people and grieving women. They didn't come to celebrate the crucifixion, but rather to mourn over it. Perhaps they saw the injustice that was taking place and they grieved over it. Perhaps they had personally experienced Jesus. He had touched them along the way. Perhaps they came in hopes that Jesus would miraculously put a stop to what was taking place and they wanted the front row seat to this great event. While there's no record of Jesus ever verbally addressing this Simon of Serene, there's a very clear message that Jesus delivers to these grieving women. He says to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. There are two reasons for this instruction. On the one hand, Jesus knows that the sorrow of this day would be temporary. He knows that in three days, he would be resurrected from the dead. And he also knows that this act would become the tool that would provide the opportunity for salvation and forgiveness for all of humanity. So don't weep for me. This is a good thing. It's unpleasant, but it is actually going to be good for all of humanity. Don't weep for me. But he also would go on to identify the fact that things will get worse for you and your children. As humanity continually deteriorates, we see that things get worse. As you look around you, it's not hard to see the hardness of man's heart getting worse. Things that we used to hate, we tolerate today. Things that we used to tolerate, we embrace. The world is ever-changing. And until Christ returns to make things right, the world will continue this downhill spiral. So don't weep over Jesus. He is accomplishing his purpose. And he is about to usher about to be ushered back into the presence of the Father. Rejoice over him, but weep over those who remain. Then we come to the cross. This has all been about getting to the cross itself. But then we come to the cross. Listen to what the word of the Lord says, beginning in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And I mentioned 
the soldiers earlier. It should be noted that the Roman soldiers became exceptionally well-trained in the art of crucifixion. And it was truly an art for them. They were good at it. Their goal was to make sure that the criminal suffered in a public manner as much as humanly possible without them actually dying before they reached the cross. And that is incredibly important to this story. On the one hand, something that we often overlook is the fact that Jesus was not the only one to be abused in preparation for this crucifixion. We talk about his abuse But in fact, the other two criminals likely endured significant abuse at the hands of these soldiers. Maybe that's a part of why we see such bitterness from one of the criminals that day. Who knows? But on the other side of this, it is likely that Jesus' need for someone else to carry his cross was derived from the fact that Jesus had already endured incredible abuse at the hands of the soldiers. Not only was he beaten and bloodied, but according to John 19, verse 2, these soldiers even made a mockery of him by taking a crown of thorns and placing it upon his head. Can you picture the mix of blood and sweat that ran down into his eyes that day? And how did Jesus respond in his suffering? According to verse 34, he prayed not the way that we would have prayed. Perhaps we would have prayed for God's wrath and justice to be poured out upon those who worked so diligently to harm us. That's certainly the way that David prayed on occasion in the Psalms. Instead, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Even in the midst of great suffering at the hands of others, Jesus is praying for those others to be forgiven. What a beautiful image. What a contrast from what one would have expected on this occasion. The prophet Isaiah prophesied about the coming crucifixion, and in doing so, he talked about the one who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, yet he would not open his mouth. Jesus willingly went to the crucifixion, and instead of crying out in anger, he cried out for compassion upon his accusers. That's what I call grace. And who would Jesus cry out for? Those mentioned in this story include the crowd of people who stood by watching in verse 35. Some of them cried out recently, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna to the king. Perhaps some of them also cried out, crucify him. Or perhaps some remained silent instead of standing up to the crowd of injustice as it was taking place. But Jesus prayed for them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Then you have the rulers. The term that is used in verse 35 is scoffed. It basically means they mocked him. He saved others, let him save himself. The irony is that within their scoffing, they acknowledge the fact that Jesus did save others. 
They knew what Jesus had done for others, and they knew it was great, but it didn't endear him to everyone. So Jesus prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Then you have the soldiers. They actually mentioned in verse 34 and 36. First, they're the ones who are casting lots for Jesus' garments. And then they give him wine vinegar, a sour vinegar, almost as an additional form of punishment. They don't want to miss out on the scoffing, the opportunity to mock Jesus. So they call him out. You say you are the king of the Jews. Save yourself. Please note that Jesus could have saved himself. And had he done so, the rulers and the soldiers probably would have been in trouble. There's a part of me that would have loved to see the looks on their faces if Jesus did call down 10,000 angels to rescue him. But he doesn't. Jesus is the one who created all things and holds all things together, which means he could have turned that wooden cross into dust at any moment. Can you imagine the uh-oh moment that these mocking soldiers or the rulers would have had if he chose to do such a thing? But he didn't. Instead, he prayed for them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Then you have the criminals. On this day, we find two criminals dying alongside Jesus. We don't know what their crimes were, but we know that it was deemed worthy of death. Remember that they've likely been abused for hours ahead of the crucifixion, and they've likely had to march through the city streets much like Jesus did. Death was imminent for them. How would they respond? I want to suggest to you this morning that if you get nothing else out of today's message, I need you to listen very closely to what I'm about to share. They both experienced similar things. They both were in the midst of intense suffering. But their judgment before God would not be based on what they had to endure. It would be based on how they responded in the midst of it all. We are told that Jesus was hung between the two criminals. So on the one side, we have a man who appears to be very bitter. And on the other, we see one who is responsive. The one who is bitter, he is declaring, I reject you. The only thing he wants from Jesus is a rescue plan. There's no sense of, recognizing his own guilt. He wants to know that he can get out of this mess. The problem is that even if Jesus had rescued him from the cross that day, it is likely that his heart would have been unchanged. Maybe you wonder how I know that. It's because I look at the world around us and it's true. Far too many people today trust For many of us, trust in Jesus has become nothing more than a tool to get what we want. I want God to bless me. I want the promise of heaven. I want all these things that Jesus can give me. I want you to know that Jesus can give you all these things. 
just like he could have delivered this man from the cross. But if you get everything that you want and you do not experience a heart change, you're truly no better off. I've seen way too many people who sought the Lord in the midst of a crisis. They wanted Jesus to change their circumstance, yet they weren't willing to allow Jesus to change their heart. The result of this man's unrepentant heart, his rejection of grace is a pending separation from God. Certainly, both of these men would die on that day. But not everyone dies and goes to the same place. For those who have been made right with God, for those who have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb, the promise is eternal life. But for those who have rejected him, it is hell that awaits. Now, I know that there are many who would question the reality of a place called hell. Some embrace the idea of heaven as a real destination for humanity, but not hell. Surely God would not send people to hell. And still others see hell as a place that is reserved only for the worst of sinners, not for ordinary people like you and me. But Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, that we are to enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. You see, the reality is that there will be many who will spend eternity in hell, having walked through the wide gate. Some will be hardened criminals, and others will be self-righteous people who simply couldn't accept the possibility that they needed Jesus. I've said it recently at a couple of funerals. But when we lose loved ones, we tend to talk about the idea that they are good people and they are perhaps in a better place. By the way, they may be good people, but we're not guaranteed that they're in a better place just because they're good people. Just because they're good people does not get anyone into heaven. The question is whether their sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to me, just as heaven is real, so is hell. And the only way to make sure that you are ready for heaven instead of hell is to humble yourself before the Lord. Confess that you are a sinner and that you need Jesus and then choose to live for him for however long you got left in this world. In fact, listen to the contrast. You've got this man who is clearly bitter. He wants Jesus to change his circumstance and not his heart. But what about the other criminal? The passage tells us that when the first criminal began to chastise Jesus, the other criminal comes to the defense of Jesus. Verse 40 and 41, he says, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
in his response, we see a completely different mindset. And it shows through in multiple ways. First, he demonstrates his own realization that both criminals are getting what they deserve. Death is on the horizon. They're not getting out of this. It's not because of unjust men falsely accusing them as Jesus is experiencing. We are receiving the due reward for our deeds. This is what we deserve. Taking responsibility is almost a forgotten thing today. We would rather find a way to deflect responsibility upon somebody else. We live in a culture that blames everybody else for our failures. It was our parents' fault. It was our culture's fault. It was even God's fault. Do you remember the story of Adam and Eve when they participated in the very first sin? God calls out to Adam and he says, did you eat from the tree which I had forbidden you to eat from? And Adam demonstrates that he's already got the blame game mastered. He says, it was that woman that you gave me. She did it. In that moment, from the very first sin, Adam has already figured out how to blame both that woman and even God since he was the one who gave that woman to him. Well, nothing has changed with society over the years. Nobody wants to own our sin. We live in a culture that has figured out how to apologize for our failures while also letting you know that it's actually somebody else's fault. We say things like, well, I'm sorry for what I did, but if you hadn't, and you can add whatever you want. The idea is, I'm sorry, but it really wasn't my fault. It was you. But you, I want you to notice that there is no denial in this criminal's response. We're getting what we deserve. You know, confession can be a beautiful thing. I know that it hurts when you have to admit that you're wrong, but it is the beginning of redemption. In recovery, we're told that the first step is admitting that you have a problem. And in our faith, the first step is admitting that we have a sin problem. The second part of this man's mindset is revealed in the fact that he recognizes where he stands in comparison to Jesus. The first criminal talked to Jesus almost if he were, as if he were superior to Jesus, or perhaps at least equal. We're equal as we all are receiving the same punishment. But the second criminal sees things very differently. Yes, we deserve what we are getting, but this man has done nothing wrong. I don't know if he fully comprehended what Jesus was doing here, but I do know that he at least had some kind of grasp to the fact that Jesus' story was not about to end. In fact, he asked Jesus to remember him and his kingdom. Not only is this man dying because of the sins of others, but his kingdom is still to come. This is a pretty profound thought as even the disciples of Jesus didn't fully comprehend that the story of Jesus was not about to end. Within this request, what we see is a man who realized that what he deserved was death, but what he needed was forgiveness and grace. 
And even though Jesus was about to die, his kingdom was still to come. So he pleads with Jesus to remember him in his kingdom. I told you that the first criminal is destined for separation from God. But I want you to notice what the second one receives. Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the promise of eternal life. He is going to be together with Jesus. Talk about grace. This guy will never be baptized. He will never have the opportunity to prove himself through his actions. He'll never share his testimony with an unbeliever. Yet today you will be with me in paradise. I call this slipping in the back door of heaven. He lived his entire life for himself. Yet as death came knocking, he was able to make things right with the Lord. And the result was the gift of eternal life. What grace. But I do caution you for a moment. That may sound attractive to you. I'll just live for myself until the day I get close to death and then I'll make things right. It has been said that many who wait until the 11th hour to make things right with God will die at 1030. In other words, you shouldn't assume that you'll have another chance to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You might, but you might not. But in addition, it should also be noted that the greatest life is not the one that is lived for oneself. It is the life that is lived for the Lord. Last week, I had the incredible opportunity to visit with Clara James. We prayed for her this morning. She is the oldest individual in this church. This past Tuesday, she turned 100 years of age. There are times that she is remarkably clear-headed, and when I get to 100, if, if there are any times where I'm clear-headed, it's a win. One of the things that she reflected on was the fact that she has been serving the Lord since she was a young lady. She then added that she had absolutely no regrets. I don't want to reach the end of my life and wonder what I could have accomplished had I been willing to follow Jesus sooner. And you shouldn't either. Don't wait until the end and hope that you have the opportunity to be made right with God. Surrender your life to him today so that whenever that day comes, you will be ready. But until that day comes, you can live a life that is truly changing the world. I close today with a question. How will you respond to what Jesus has done for you? It matters. How you respond will either lead to heaven or hell. Which will you prefer? Which criminal are you? The one who is bitter, Lord, change my circumstance, get me out of this mess that I created myself. Or remember me and your kingdom. Which will you be? If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, what you did on the cross 
changes everything. Thank you for willingly becoming our sacrifice, for allowing your blood to be shed as a payment for our sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We know that. Thank you that you so willingly became that sacrifice. But we also come before you today recognizing that we have a response that must be made. Father, I pray that I pray that the individuals who are hearing this today, whether online or in person, I pray that each one would respond with a willingness to have our hearts changed. Lord, that we would be able to pray to you, Father, remember, or Lord, remember me in your kingdom. Father, I pray today that you would send forgiveness of sins. You tell us in your word that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and would forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't want to wait on the hope that we'll get another chance. Lord, right now, I pray for each individual who is here that we would take advantage of the chance that we have today. Forgive us and make us ready so that when that day comes, when you call us home or when you return to us, that we will not have to approach it with fear, but rather we will approach it with excitement, anticipation of having a front row seat to see the true triumphal entry. Father, for the one today who's not ready to make that decision, they're still praying. They're looking for you to give them what they need, but their heart has not been changed. Lord, I pray right now that you would speak to their hearts and that they would hunger for you. Change them, change everything about them until they reach the point that they are willing to give themselves to you. We'll give you praise for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. I did not ask you to raise your hand or anything like that this morning, and part of that is because I want you to take the time to examine your own heart. Which criminal are you? I would love to be able to talk with anyone who perhaps right now you are saying, you know what, I think that I want to be that criminal who prayed, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. I would love to be able to pray with you and to be able to share with you about the hope that Jesus has made available to us. I know next Sunday it's going to be all about Easter, and we're going to celebrate the resurrection. It's going to be a great time, but I want you to know that Easter takes on new meaning when your life is surrendered to Jesus Christ. Jerry also mentioned, just as I close, that next Sunday the sunrise service is at 7, and hopefully it'll be a lot warmer. Uh, this morning it was 38 degrees. Ooh, that was cold. That being said, next Sunday it's probably going to be about 48 degrees. So celebrate it. Uh, come join us if you can. We're starting at 6.58. I know it says 7 o'clock on everything, but sunrise is at 6.58. So that's close enough. You can tell people 7, but don't be late. So it is such a blessing to have you with us. Thank you. And go in peace.